and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book, and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today's episode is our final, or our penultimate, I should say, episode on Bleak House, we are finishing the novel today with serials 19 and 20, which were originally published as a double whammy, both together, which is why we split them up. We will be doing a mix of the informal and formal episodes today, so we'll have some plot overview. We will discuss what goes on, who dies, who lives, who marries, who gives birth at the end of this novel, but we'll also be talking about some of my favorite quotes, some chapter headings, some themes, etc. Let's dive in to chapter number 60, serial 19 slash 20, in a chapter called Perspective. On 758, we've got a new chapter heading that really breaks the cyclic nature of this book for a moment, and that is definitely, or was as I was reading, one signal that this book was coming to an end. This is of course narrated by Esther since it's in the first person past tense narration. Quote, I proceed to other passages of my narrative. From the goodness of all about me, I derive such consolation as I can never think of unmoved. I have already said so much of myself, and so much still remains, that I will not dwell upon my sorrow. I had an illness, but it was not a long one, and I would avoid even this mention of it if I could quite keep down the recollection of their sympathy. I proceed to other passages of my narrative. Unquote. Wow, what an interesting chapter head! I had to write, I had to read this a couple times actually the first time I went through, just to make sure I'd gotten it right. Like, okay, we're going to we're continuing on the story, of course, in this timeline that we've been on since the beginning. This track isn't changing, um, but Esther does get a small illness again, and she is essentially like clearing her throat for one of the first times in the novel and. I think that there's so much foreshadowing, and that's definitely part of the cyclic nature of this book. That's one of the tropes that's so heavily used throughout this book, along with the dramaticism of the characters and the settings and the social problems, the Court of Chancery, uh, poverty, for example, uh, with Tom all alones and the character Joe that Dickens is drawing out here. And I think it's such a brilliant move to kind of have this full stop in the book as it comes to a close. So of course, we already mentioned Esther has another short illness. And right after she recovers from said illness, she is back next to John Jarndyce in her little chair, as she calls it, and John Jarndyce starts to mysteriously allude to leaving Bleak House, but I think what confuses Esther is that he is quite happy about this, and he is smiling and very joyful about it, and yet there's the prospect of leaving or changing Bleak House somehow, especially with Esther becoming the mistress of it so soon. There's a lot of questions to be asked here. We know at this time that Ada has been visiting quite a bit, but Richard has taken a turn for the worse. He is not doing well at all. 
in a very short transition, Esther is at Richard and Ada's in London and there's a scene with Mr. Voles and it's kind of the last drawn out scene with Mr. Voles talking to someone at length. He's talking to Esther here and he's kind of cursing the marriage in a sense. He's saying Richard is really not fit for marriage right now and Richard and Ada are in a very tight spot. They're getting poorer and poorer and the situation is looking worse and worse as they continue on. At the end of the chapter, there's a very touching scene between Esther and Ada that I quite enjoyed reading, even though it's very, very sad. Ada is evidently pregnant and she is afraid that Richard will either A, the worst case scenario, not live to see his child, or B, that his child will not be enough to save him. There's also, I shall mention, there's also a scene tucked in there before the conversation with Ada with Miss Flight and Esther, and Miss Flight has some very disturbing, maddening things to say, including that she's made Richard her successor, and blah. It's a very, very bleak chapter, <laughs> no pun intended. Chapter 61, A Discovery. So, in the beginning of this chapter, Esther decides to visit Mr. Skimpole, and there are two reasons for her visit. The first thing she asks, or begs of him, rather, is to not visit Richard anymore, and she's so frustrated with him by this point. I think as many readers are. I mean, I was just, like, so done with him at this point. Um, like, you leech, stop visiting people who can't afford to entertain you. In any case, he seems to be quite understanding of that point and takes it in tow. And then number two, Esther asks essentially why he took the bribe when Bucket asked for Joe's location. And he said, you know, of course I'm a child. I have no understanding of such things and I would have gotten it with or without the money and blah 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 and it's just this whole long drawn out thing as it always is with Skimple so I'm not going to dwell on it too much but it turns out that this is the last time she sees Skimpole. There's kind of a mass flight of characters out of this book in these last chapters as Dickens is mentioning them and making sure to tie up all loose ends. Apparently, Skimpole dies some five years later after splitting with John Jarndyce, and he splits with John Jarndyce because he doesn't fully heed the warning that Esther gives him at the beginning of this chapter to stop visiting Richard and Ada because they can't afford to entertain him any longer. Mr. Woodcourt uh, and Esther end up meeting, and he walks her home after this and he ends up telling her when they get back home of his deep feelings for her. That's right, he essentially proposes marriage and she confusedly turns him down in like a kind of maddening scene and you know there are so many factors in this. For example, Mrs. Woodcourt has been living with Esther and John Jarndyce for a while so you know, that's kind of awkward, but then she really does have feelings for Mr. Woodcourt, but she's kind of tampering them down because she knows that she's going to marry John Jarndyce soon, but then that situation is weird because John Jarndyce hasn't really talked about it or brought it up since she accepted his proposal. So <laughs> there's a, really a multitude of factors that Esther has to kind of summarize up, and I think under the circumstances she does a pretty good job at saying, look, 
I love you too, but I'm in this situation and I can't say yes right now. Chapter 62, Another Discovery. So Esther, of course, brings these concerns to John, like, hey, haven't we, why haven't we done anything about our wedding in X, Y, and Z time period? And they start to arrange a wedding date for a month out. Mr. Bucket and Old Smallweed come up to John Jonas's office after this little discussion they have, and they produce a document. They found Old Jarndus's will, which we will find out in a second at Kengi and Carboys, that it is dated the latest in the case, uh, meaning that it's quite valuable and vitally important. And they found all of this, of course, in Crook's belongings somewhere, and Crook couldn't read, so he just kind of had all these papers, and he ironically happened to have a key piece of paperwork for this case, just randomly embedded in all this paperwork that he was hoarding. So Esther and John Jarndyce, of course, take this to Kengi and Carboys, their lawyers, on the case. Kengi and Carboy send Voles to come and look at the document as well with them, and they do declare it very important because of the date, because of what it says, and the will provides for not only Cousin John, but also for Richard and Ada, and it does so very handsomely. Chapter 63, Steel and Iron. So Mr. George, fresh out of prison, has closed his shooting gallery, and he lives with Sir Leicester Dedlock now. They have this old fondness for each other that has resurrected after so long, after they reunite. And Mrs. Rounsell is, of course, continuing on her duties with the, the Dedlock estate as well. George rides north in the beginning of this chapter into Iron Country, and he ends up visiting his brother, who is the Iron Master. His brother's son, who we've encountered before, Mrs. Rounswell, Mrs. Rounswell's grandson, is about to marry Rosa, Lady Dedlock's old handmaiden kind of figure. <laughs> After Rosa goes to school in Germany for a while and spits up her education so that she can get married, and they end up, the family does, lumping George's homecoming into a pre-planned pre-marriage feast for Rosa and young Mr. Rouncewell, the grandson, and they have just a wonderful time with all of this food and all of these celebrations and welcoming George back into the family. After all this, as George is preparing to leave, he brings up something that's been heavy on his heart with his brother, and he says, I would like to be scratched out of the will, of our mother's will, that is, and his brother convinces him, don't entreat our mother to scratch you out of the will, rather just give away whatever you inherit if it comes to that. So he's sort of talked out of this presumption that he must be so disgraced so as to be written out of the will. He also asks his brother to proofread a letter to Esther, explaining his role with Captain Hawden and the whole ha handwriting fiasco with Tolkienhorn and Bucket and all them, and he emphasizes, look, I really thought your father was dead. I would have done everything in my power to help him if I had known he was alive, and I thought this was a really 
interesting and very thorough job, in fact, uh, on Dickens' part as he was wrapping up this book. Chapter 64, Esther's Narrative. So Esther starts quietly arranging her wedding, she gets 200 pounds to start looking at clothing, etc. for the wedding, and she orders everything to what she thinks will be John Jarnus's satisfaction. She's one of those people that looks to the needs of others before everyone else. John goes out of town shortly after on business and sends her a letter after he arrives asking her to make a day's journey to come to him and assist him in this task. And she comes, she makes the day's journey, and finds out that he has bought and made up a house for Woodcourt, except that the house has been made up in Esther's style of housekeeping. So even the flower arrangements out front, all of the little weird housekeeping tips that Esther has invented for herself are all employed in this house. And she's going, hmm, that's kind of awkward because I just rejected his marriage proposal. Isn't that going to remind him too much of me? And it turns out that Cousin John all along has arranged for Esther to marry Woodcourt. Yes, big win! I knew it. This was my, like, number one hope for this novel, <laughs> is that Esther would end up marrying Woodcourt and not Cousin John somehow, some way. Apparently, we find out a little quip in here that I thought was interesting, that Bleak House was written seven years after she gets married to Woodcourt. I just thought that was interesting that it's kind of this recent retrospective viewpoint and not something written like 20 years in the future. They all return to Bleak House after this, and Guppy, Joe Bling, and Mrs. Guppy <laughs> arrive on scene. And Guppy renews his proposal to Esther in a very, very cringeworthy scene. Of course, he gets uh, turned down very politely by John Jarndyce, who's like, okay, no. And Mrs. Guppy makes a huge fit before they end up leaving. Chapter 65, Beginning the World. So Esther and Alan end up going to court to hear Jarndyce and Jarndyce being read. Finally, it is finally, again, the next term for this. They run into Caddy Jellybee on the way and she's renting a coach because she's got so many students that she's going this way and that too. And she is so gracious and she just expresses her overjoy for the couple and their engagement. Alan and Esther are 15 minutes late to court, however, because of this delay, and there's standing room only by the time they get there, and it is, they can't hear anything. It is completely packed to the gills, as they say, and eventually someone near them verbally reports, Jarndyce and Jarndyce is over for good. So they find out from Kengi and Carboy after the session that the whole of the Jarndyce estate has been used up in court fees, and thus it has ended. <laughs> Which honestly, if you think about it, is the only way that it could have ended, right? I mean, I remember speculating a bit about this, and I'm not sure if I said this exact ending, <laughs> but it does seem like it would be very expensive and 
right? Over decades and decades, people being born into and dying out of this case, literally, it makes complete sense that this is how it would end, with sort of a an anti-resolution, right? There's no, like, grandiose decision on behalf of the court, and again, this whole book is about the inefficacy of the court and the ridiculousness of it, and this particular court in London as well, and, you know, how better an ending for the seminal case of this court than to literally have it not resolve factually, but rather resolve because the court has been so insufficient that it's used up the entire estate in trying to resolve the case. Very ironic. Very, I think, sort of tragic in some ways, but definitely there's that relief that comes from the resolution. I think we see that in Lady Deadlock as well. This sort of like relief that comes with, okay, finally the secret is out, finally everyone knows, I don't have to keep living like this and hiding it anymore. I think the Court of Chancery kind of experiences a similar relief, even though, like I said, it's just a all goes to show the inefficacy of the courts. On page 807, Richard finally meets John Jarndyce from his sickbed, and I'm going to read a passage from that page here. Page 807, like I said. Quote, my, guardi my guardian, the picture of a good man, sat down in my place, keeping his hand on Richard's. My dear Rick, said he, the clouds have cleared away, and it is bright now. We can see now. We were all bewildered, Rick, more or less. What matters? And how are you, my dear boy? I am very weak, sir, but I hope I shall be stronger. I have to begin the world. I truly, well said, cried my guardian. I will not begin it in the old way now, said Richard, with a sad smile. I have learned a lesson now, sir. It was a hard one, but you shall be assured indeed that I have learned it. Well, well, said my guardian, comforting him. Well, 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 dear boy. Unquote. So, you know, this is, oh, it's so sad and again, like, so tragic, but what a better, could there be a better way for Richard to kind of go out? This is really the last thing we hear from him. And he says, you know, he's finally sort of learned the lesson and he's really the last victim of the Court of Chancery and this court case, in my opinion, and he's kind of the last refuge of it in some ways. There's also a little passage at the end of this chapter where Miss Flight comes and she reports to Esther that she has released all of her birds. <laughs> if you remember from earlier in the book, she has like 30 birds that have been injured at some point or other, and so she like rehabilitates them but she decides not to release them until Jarndyce and Jarndyce is over. And so she has, you know, such a collection of birds by this point. They're kind of her livelihood in some ways. And she releases them because the court case is over, which is, you know, very symbolic. Chapter 66, Down in Lincolnshire. Sir, Lady, Sir, Leicester Dedlock, goodness gracious, Sir, Lady Dedlock, okay, Sir, Leicester Dedlock retires to Chesney Wald in the country, he does not keep 
his residence at the London estate for obvious reasons. Lady Dedlock, his uh, spouse who has just passed away, is laid in the crypt at Chesney Walden. He does rides with George and they stop at the crypt to pay her respects. There's a dispute still going on between Boythorn and Sir Leicester Dedlock. And it just, just so, it's one of the most constant things in the book, right? It kind of is a little facsimile of the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case. On page 811, I love this quote. So the quarrel goes on to the satisfaction of both, unquote. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? They're, they married the two sisters who are both deceased now. They both went through a lot and they kind of have a kinsmanship, um, or a kinship rather, and that's one way for them to sort of express it without <laughs> expressing it in so many words. We hear a little bit of a paragraph here from Phil, who is George's assistant at the shooting gallery, and he is working, shining up the stable yard. We also hear a little bit about Volumnia. She stays with Sir Leicester Dedlock at Chesney Wald and reads to him in the evenings, and he, she essentially wants to be kept in the will. I kind of question a lot about Volumnia. She's a very mysterious character in some ways, but I think ultimately very redeemable in this respect that even though she might have selfish notions at heart, she's one of the only ones who doesn't completely abandon Sir Leicester Dudlock when things get truly desolate and hard. The Bagnets visit to see George, of course, at Chesney Walls. And on page 813 is the last description that we get of Chesney Wald, which has been such a primary location in this book. Quote, Thus Chesney Wald, with so much of itself abandoned to darkness and vacancy, with so little change under the summer shining or the wintry lowering, so somber and motionless always, no flag flying now by day, no rows of lights sparkling by night, with no family to come and go, no visitors to be the souls of pale, cold shapes of rooms, no stir of life about it. Passion and pride, even to the stranger's eye, have dried away from the place in Lincolnshire and yield it to dull repose, unquote. So kind of a, again, like a bleak, no pun intended, uh, tragic kind of ending for Chesney Wold. I mean, it, it was coming to this all along, right? With the ghost walk as a key symbolic foreshadowing of essentially the, de the destitution of Chesney Wold. So a little bit melancholy at the end there, but again, a very, I think, tidy wrapping up of this place that has been so important to us this whole time. Chapter 67, the last chapter of Bleak House. The close of Esther's narrative. So Richard does pass away, and Ada gives birth to a son whom she calls Richard. This is important for several reasons, one of which is that this book is extremely cyclic, and it's cyclic because it wants to overtly expose a lot of the inefficacies of London, and that happens through the characters, right? It, it's tragic in that way because the characters end up absorbing a lot of the ridiculousness that Dickens wants to involve in this book, but 
rate. There's this kind of cyclic nature to the book. So Ada giving birth to her son Richard not only is, you know, a common thing for that time and now, but is also kind of this cyclic symbolism of, okay, now there's another <laughs> Richard. And hopefully a Richard who is going to serve his mother, in this case, better. And it the cyclic nature of the book also has to do with, I think, the cyclic nature of the courts, right? Meeting at certain times every year, the same time every year. There's a lot of clock symbolism, especially with Tolkienhorn, who's kind of a vestige of a lot of the old law and old ways of doing things. Uh, and so again, that's kind of, it's a circle, it's a cycle, it keeps going and it's very regular and yet there's kind of nothing that gets done. It's impassive. It is, it has no opinions of itself. Esther, we hear, has two daughters with Ellen Woodcourt after they get married, um, which is, you know, good for her. I kind of was creeped out a little bit by it, to be honest, because, um, of course, her mother and her sister, two daughters, but that might be just a coincidence. Uh, Charlie, her young maid, was married to an adoring, well-off Miller, close to Esther. Emma, Charlie's younger sister, becomes Esther's maid in place of Charlie, and Tom, Charlie's older brother, or younger brother as it may be, uh, is the Miller's apprentice. Caddy Jellybee is doing well, evidently. Um, her husband, however, is now lame, and her daughter is disabled, but she does everything a doting mother could do to support her family, and are every all parties are happy besides it is reported there's a little aside about peepee and turvy drop which i just find hilarious um that turvy drop is kind of living in his own ways and he's taken on peepee and he's quite fond of him and it reminds me a lot of the characters in infinite jest mario Hal's younger brother and the coach from school, the German tennis coach, and kind of their relationship, their little buddy relationship. That reminds me a lot of PP and Turvy Job. And we find this little quip that I just found awesome, that the wind is always to the west, not to the east. We know that John Jarndyce has kind of a thing about where the wind is going, and you can tell his mood by where the wind is going. And the ending scene is with Alan and Esther, and Alan essentially is just telling her, you don't see yourself very clearly. I know you think that your looks have been so altered by your previous illness, but you are now more beautiful than you were before. And the actual ending ends mid-sentence with a dash, which I just find so brilliant. And I couldn't think of myself a better way to end this book. That is the end of serials 19 and 20, and also the end of the novel. Thank you so much for sticking in with me as we've read this book. It took a lot longer, like I said, than anticipated, but super enjoyable. This is definitely my favorite Dickens book, I'm not gonna lie. I really like David Copperfield still, I really like Great Expectations, I really like a lot of Dickens books, but this one just kind of threw me for a loop. There's so much here, 
I'd love to read it again one day, maybe in a shorter time period. Um, but that is all for this uh, series in terms of the book part. I will be doing a Bleak House series conclusion of sorts where we do fun facts and that kind of thing. It'll be a shorter episode but still fun and still a good way I think to send off the series. Alright y'all, I will see you soon. Thank you so much again for hanging with me through Bleak House by Charles Dickens. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.